Welcome to Bethel Brandon Sunday Message. Please head over to our website, BethelBrandon.ca, to figure out how we can best serve. Amen. I'm excited once we start to get into the end of February and into the March. And it's just because every time I wake up, there's kind of all of a sudden we're closer to light. And, and then many times at 6 o'clock, it's still light out. 6 o'clock is that kind of, you get that enthusiasm for life, you know, like I just, oh, this is, this is great. It energizes me just as much as it discourages me kind of in like <laughs> you know, October or November. All of a sudden it's like, oh, no, you know, we're not getting the light that we used to. But anyways. If you're just joining us, if you're following us uh, online live stream, or if you've been coming every Sunday, and maybe you haven't, we have been going through the book of John. And as we do, I realize how big this book really is. I am on, and you may not realize this, I'm on part 16 of the book. Wow, 16? Man, are you boring? No. It's exciting. And, and the idea is this, when you go through a book, is to try and go a little bit deeper. And that's what my encouragement is for all of us. As we get into the Word of God together and go a little bit deeper, that that will inspire you to go deeper as well. And so we've got a great passage of Scripture that uh, I wanted to share with you. It's entitled, Neither Do I Condemn You. It is found in the book of John, um, chapter 8, verses 1 to 11. So if you have your... Um, your Bibles, or if you have your Bible apps or whatever, turn to that right now. Actually, I probably will be starting at uh, John uh, 7, verse 53, the last verse of uh, John chapter 7, right into 8. And why do you do that? Well, because chapter 8, verse 1, starts in the middle of a sentence. Isn't that kind of crazy? Kind of adds to the craziness of this whole passage, to be quite honest with you. Because this is one of the most popular passages that they have. I'm sure that you have heard a sermon on this particular story more than once. It is a favor of pastors. It is a favor for those of you who read your devotions and you come across this passage. It kind of does something to you. Not, not just because it's popular, but because it is powerful. Like there's lots of emotion. Your emotions are just going here, right, and left of all the things that were taking place. And, and it's about overt sin. Someone who just obviously, but it's about covert sin. It's about the sin that's kind of underneath that perhaps you don't see. And there's something powerful about it that says something for us today. It is provocative. You may not know this, but this particular passage is probably the most provo provocative passage, the most debated passage for sure in all of the book of John. As I was studying this week on this, there are certain commentators who do a footnote about this and then they don't even talk about it. It's so provocative that it might change the way you think about this particular passage of scripture. I hope that it doesn't. And so it's interesting to discuss it. The other thing about it is that it's very pertinent. Some of the things that it talks about, the general lesson that it gives us is something that we are dealing with today in spades. Perhaps the most important thing that we are talking about in the church in general today. 
But maybe even most of all, it is puzzling. It is one of those stories where I ask a thousand questions. Do you ever have that in the Bible? Well, what about this? You're, you're reading it and say, well, it doesn't tell me about Why doesn't it tell me about this? I wish it would tell me about this. Why is that going on? Exactly, exactly why did that take place? And, and you're left asking questions and they don't give them to you. Isn't that frustrating? So do I have your interest peaked? Hopefully, hopefully I do. You will, if you've been a Christian for any length of time, recognize this story. And I'll start at John chapter 7, verse 53. And then it says that they all went home. Verse, eight, verse 1, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. At dawn he appeared again in the temple courts where all the people gathered around him, and he sat down to teach them. The teachers of the law brought in a woman caught in adultery. They made her stand before the group, and Jesus said, and said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. In the law of Moses, uh, commanded us to stone such a woman. Now, what do you say? Now, they were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. But Jesus bent down and started to write on the ground with his finger. When they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and said to them, Let any one of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. Again, he stooped down, wrote on the ground. At this, those who heard began to go away one at a time, the oldest ones first, until only Jesus was left with the woman standing there. And Jesus straightened up and asked her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. Then neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Go and leave your life of sin. Powerful, isn't it? If you've read this passage of Scripture, if you've heard this passage of Scripture, can you wave at me? Yeah, almost, almost all of us have. There are a ton of questions. ton of questioning things about it. And so what I thought I would do is I thought I would, would deal with it in the light of the questions because I'm figuring this. If I have questions, chances are you probably have questions about this as well. Have you had any questions about this passage of Scripture? I'm sure that you have. The first question that I have has to deal with the story itself. And many of you, perhaps, you know, as a result, you know, of not being and having the opportunity to look a little bit deeper, maybe know some of the commentaries have come to realize that this story actually is not in many of the original or the oldest manuscripts of the story. It starts right at verse 12. They don't include this story at all. And you're thinking, that's kind of crazy, isn't it? It wasn't until the 5th century that we begin to see this story in Scripture. Which leads a lot of people to say, this really wasn't John who had given it. Perhaps was a monk or a scribe who gave it a little bit later. As a matter of fact, the way the language is kind of... Is kind of uh, presented out, you know, kind of makes us think that this may have just been a story. And so that's why many commentators say, listen, you know, we don't think that this is part of the original book of John. Isn't that crazy? Is that kind of blowing away a little bit? Here's the thing. And, and many of us don't realize this uh, about Scripture. There, there are certain times where, where as they were putting the canon of Scripture together and all these things, that there was a little bit of debate. Now, with this None of the debates have to do with history or doctrine. It doesn't interfere with that at all. 
And let me just tell you this, and, and maybe you don't find this interesting. For those of you history people, you kind of think this is great. That when the original scriptures were written, they weren't written in paper. They weren't written on a computer, obviously. They were written out by hand. Many of it was etched in stone. A lot of it was on a material which was called papyrus, which was from a reed that was, had a whole bunch of it in the, in the Nile in Egypt. And, and so all these things were painstakingly written out to the point where at that particular time, there are very few, the original, the original copies or the original thing. But manuscripts were copied again and again and again. And can you just imagine that? You know, you just couldn't press the photocopier and it, it shoots out the, the papyrus <laughs> photocopier or whatever that, that was. And it, but what happened was there were manuscripts that maintained. Now in history... The book of the, one of the book of history uh, of, of, of Rome, perhaps, was one of them that Caesar had written around the time of Jesus. There were only two or three uh, manuscripts which remained of this. And they see this as absolutely authentic things that Caesar had said. In the Bible, in the New Testament particularly, in terms of all the manuscripts that they had over the years had accumulated... There are not five or ten. There are 5,000. 5,000 manuscripts that were written of portions of the New Testament or complete copies of the New Testament. And when they had done them, it was, it was a, a, a hard thing in the fact that there was so many, so many of these renditions. But the thing is, as well, is that there were so many that you could compare them to that you could actually get everything correct. And I'll, I'll just say this, that the most accurate scripture, or the most accurate document, I would say, that we have today is the New Testament, based on all of those documents. But there were some, there were some differences. There's, there were some documents that had this story a little bit later in John, or at the end of John. There was one particular document that had this story in the book of Luke. And it's crazy. And so you think, oh, it must not have been in Scripture. However, the story that you hear has been in circulation and in writing that wasn't quite in Scripture. It was from the early church fathers as early as a couple of years after John had died. And what they say as well is that although, although it may not have been seen in later ones, the copies that it do, does have may have been for manuscripts that we don't have now. The other thing they said is this. There is a pattern to John's writing where there is, there is a, a crisis or something which happens, and then there's dialogue. It was like called the Johannian pattern. And this follows that pattern. Not only that, but it, what it does is it, it, looks, it looks to be in line with what the Pharisees did. They're always setting traps for Jesus. Isn't this interesting stuff? I hope that you find it, it interesting. You know? And those people who say, I don't know if it was actually legitimately in uh, John's writing, say this. Many of them say this. There's no doubt that this story took place. Because throughout scripture or throughout writings and literature, we kind of see parts of it. And so, and so there is a group that kind of thinks, hey, there's something here. And there's another group that says, yes, it is part. And I'll let you kind of decide where you are in the portion. But it doesn't take away with the power of the passage of scripture. But I thought I would at least somehow put that out to you. So there's lots of questions. Like, there's not just the question of the story. There's the question of the scenario. 
It says that Jesus went to the Mount of Olives in, in, in 8 verse 1. And, and you think, well, what does that have to do with anything? Well, that kind of tells us what Jesus' pattern was. While he was in Jerusalem, his day was spent much of the time teaching. You will take a look that a majority of the time we hear about Jesus, he is teaching. And even when he, is, he isn't teaching, we are learning something about him. Isn't that not true? And so he was up to the Mount of Olives, and so what happened was during the day he would teach. Many times he would minister to people, and then near the end of the day he would retreat to pray at the Mount of Olives, or he would pour into the disciples, and those things took place. The other thing which I think is important for you to understand is this, is that he sat down to speak, and the people stood around him. So when you say we should be more like the New Testament, I agree, and I will get my seat and have you stand. Okay, maybe not. I didn't think I would get much response to that. So, it's crazy when it says that everyone was there in the dawn. It happened really, really early in the morning. It wasn't like it was a morning service. It was like a sunrise service. Remember those? Hey, remember the sunrise service we used to have on Easter morning? You used to get up at 6 o'clock in the morning, everyone would have breakfast, and then we'd have an early service. Well, this is what it was like at that time. And, and there, was, there was things happening very early in the morning. This wasn't an afternoon message. It wasn't even a late morning message. As the sun came up, Jesus was down there. Why is this important? Well, we'll get into that. But the thing is, is this. That the crowd that Jesus talked to, and it was still during the Feast of Tabernacles, so there was many, many people still in Jerusalem. That the crowd that Jesus talked to was what we would call eclectic. There were different people. There were church people who were listening. No doubt there were religious people who were listening. But there were a lot of people who weren't really church-going people probably referred to as sinners, people who had kind of given up on faith. And here they were, all these mixed mash of people who were religious and people who were not religious and people who were looking for healing. This was kind of the group that Jesus was talking to. And it becomes interesting what happens when the Pharisees come in this early in the morning and crash the service. Now, let me just tell you this, that the Pharisees are no longer looking and focusing on Jesus' morality. They are focusing on Jesus' mortality. In other words, at this point, they want to at least arrest him, if better still, to kill him. This is what they want. They're heated, they're frustrated, they're jealous, they're infuriated. And it has precipitated to the point of frustration. It is so frustrating that they are willing to compromise their integrity, their guidelines, their observances, and even the word of God. And they do this. They go this to this, res to this resort. It starts here. We see it at the crucifixion. All the laws that were broken Jesus during Jesus' crucifixion is incredible. And so this is the scenario and what happens is the next question has to do with the sentence. All of a sudden, there is this girl who gets brought into them, in the midst of them, and it says that she was caught in the act of adultery. That means, if I'm not mistaken, that they caught them in the midst of the action. At 6 o'clock, 7 o'clock in the morning, and I'm 
sometimes naive. But isn't this an activity that happens in the back room of a back room where nobody is around? And this is happening first thing in the morning. So it wasn't like they were walking down the road and all of a sudden they're looking down a back alley and something like this was going on. No, they were creeping at four o'clock in the morning in someone's house and they catch them in the act. Kind of crazy. Now, the law says, they say, hey, I think we need to stone this person. Jesus, what, what do you think? Well, this is kind of crazy. And now, here's the question that everyone asks. And again, I'm naive, but if you are caught in the act, adultery usually takes at least two people. Does it not? Could be strange. It's not something that you get caught in the act doing alone. Right? This would make sense to me. So the question that I ask, and probably every woman in this this sanctuary or anyone watching online is this, where is, where is the guy? Here's the other thing that we need to consider when you take a look at this passage of scripture. Something that maybe we don't realize. That stoning for events like this required a process, first of all. And even though that is the case, I heard one person say this. They had not been practicing this for hundreds of years. People had not been stoned for hundreds and hundreds of years. There's one case that we, that we hear about someone being stoned, and it was Stephen, and that was an illegal homicide which took place. Not only that, it was against the law in Rome to be able to do it anyways. And so here they are uh, talking about a rule or something in Scripture which they him, themselves have not practiced for hundreds and hundreds of years. It's crazy if you stop and think of it. So they break into and erupt the morning service, the sunrise, ser sunrise service, while the Word of God is being taught to confront Jesus in front of the crowd. And they're willing to disrespect their own laws to trap Jesus. And they jeopardize their own standards. Could you imagine if Jesus did this to them while they were teaching? Jesus all of a sudden shows up and says, Stop! Got a question here. Look at this person. They would be arrested. Or sorry, Jesus would be arrested. He would be accused of breaking the law. How dare you come in the middle of a service where we are studying the word of God and you disrupt it the way you do. Can you imagine that happening in a service like this? That'd be kind of crazy. That'd be kind of one of those, I remember service times, would it not? The spouse doesn't go to church. They are sick. They come home and the spouse says, so how was church this morning? Well, it was okay. Well, apparently there's this half-naked woman that they brought into the church and, uh, and messed around with his wife or husband. And I can't remember all the details. Oh, okay, well, what's for lunch? No, that's not what would happen. It'd be crazy. There's no sand for me to write on. Not that that would be my job anyways. It's kind of interesting. They were blinded. This wasn't about their hatred of adultery. It was about their hatred of Jesus. And they were blinded and there was a trap. Well, what was the trap? Why did they do it in front of all these people? Well, because there were a number of people in the congregation who were also sinners, pretty deep sinners. 
And so for them to bring this person in front of them, they said, if, they can, if we can somehow get him to say yes, stone her. Then all of a sudden, those people who had been following would feel about their own sin, something that would be there. Not only that, he would be breaking the Roman law that would be taking place. And so they tried to put him in a, a, a catch-22 to somehow, somehow bring about a way and an opportunity to accuse him. So what about, next question is, what about the sand? What about the fact that in this process, what Jesus does, his response to all of this is to stoop down and write on the sand. And again, this happened two times. It's not just once that he did it. It is twice that he does it. And people throughout the centuries have had a field day somehow arguing and thinking about what exactly did Jesus write in the sand. Is that something that you have asked yourself? Here's the thing. There are actually two, two major um, theories of this here. The first thing was that Jesus sat down and he wrote in the sand. That was the only time that we see recorded that Jesus wrote anything. And then he wrote it in something that you couldn't record. He wrote into the sand. The only other time that we hear about Jesus writing, had to, or sir, with God writing, was the Ten Commandments. And when God wrote the Ten Commandments, it said that he descended. Twice he descended. And Jesus descends, stoops down twice to write in the sand. And so they figure with this typology that Jesus was writing the Ten Commandments. And when he wrote the Ten Commandments, many of the scribes, particularly the older ones, came to the realization that they were breaking the law. In embarrassment, they walked out. The other theory is this that Jesus began to write down the personal sins of the accusers. Why did they figure that? Well, the Greek word is katagraphin. And katagraphin is a word that, is, that means to write an accusation against. And so when he wrote those things down, they figure he was writing down the accusations of the sins of the people who were there, things that nobody would know about. And let me tell you, if I'm in the service... And somebody starts writing down some stuff about me, I'm out of there. I'm telling you right now, if there's anything that would scare me, it would have all the skins that, that all the sins that were happening and the things that have done in my life all of a sudden become written in the ground for everyone to see. And so as a result, they leave. Whatever it was, the fact that he wrote these things down and said, He who was out without sin cast the first stone, quelled whatever was taking place. And I believe that they left because of exposure. Either their own personal sin or the realization that what they were doing was unlawful. And it also makes me say this, this whole comment of him saying, he who is out without sin cast the first stone, I think that that was a statement that was meant for the Pharisees at that particular time. I don't think that that was ever meant to be a universal statement that we use. Pretty interesting stuff if you think of this passage of Scripture and all the questions that are, are there. The last question has to deal with the last part. Because if you don't get the last part of this story, you don't get the story at all. Had to do with the dialogue that Jesus has 
with this person who is blatantly called caught in a sin. He says, where are your accusers? They're gone. Neither do I accuse you. Go and sin no more or stop living your life of sin. Here's three things that I notice about this particular passage. That Jesus, first of all, is not condemning. At the same time, he's not conceding the sin. But what he does, he acts in compassion. And this was the thing that made Jesus so attractive. The thing that I call this, just for my own thinking, is this. It is the holiness and the grace continuum. The holiness is the fact that God calls us to live holy lives, and there's this thing which is sin that ruins our life, and there's this thing which is called grace, where God comes and forgives our sins. And, and so sometimes on the whole process, we kind of focus on the grace, forget the sin. And other times we focus on the sin, and we forget the grace, and somehow, somewhere along the line, we got to get this right. We got to get it right as to where we need to be on so, both sides of that continuum. Because if we don't, then we ruin people's lives. That there are lots of casualties that, that we, we see and that, and that we ex experience. We don't want to go wrong. Now, a good place to establish this continuum, I think, is to understand a number of things. The first one is this that Jesus didn't accept her sin and doesn't accept sin. Why? Because sin will keep you from God. Sin will make you lost. It will destroy you for eternity. The reason that Jesus was there was because of sin and the seriousness of sin. Now, this includes everything that the Bible says about sin and reveals to us about sin. It includes the sins that I enjoy. It includes the sins that I keep doing that are stubborn. And maybe I don't want to do them, but I keep on doing them. Maybe it's the sins that I'm prone to do. May not be a thing for you, but for some reason it's a thing for me. Maybe it's the sins that I'm particularly susceptible. It includes the private sins. It includes the sins that nobody sees. It includes the things that I think are inconsequential. Well, yeah, it's a sin, but everybody does that sin. So therefore, it's not really a serious sin. God can't send all of us to hell, can he? It's the sins that we justify. It's the sins that we think we can get by with for some reason or not. And just because I have an inclination to sin, just because I'm ponder, just because it feels like it's part of my lifestyle, doesn't mean it's justification, does it? That, that um, inclination does not mean justification, that there are, many, are plenty of behaviors that I have been predisposed to that the Bible tells me that I can't act on can't rationalize sin because sin will kill you. We can't handle biblical prohibitions irresponsibly. We can't shape biblical prohibitions around our cultural or our personal preferences. This is true. We can never think that God will bless what God condones. We can never think that God will bless what God denounces. That's truth. That's one of the main things that we have to come to. This is, this is, not, this is not debatable. The other thing is this. The other truth is this. That grace requires me to see others sin in the light of my own sin. That there has been grace upon my life. I have been pardoned from the sin that is in my life. And as a result, I am grateful 
and I'm not judgmental. It's a big difference between the one and the other. That God's grace constrains me to live a holy life. In the light of the experience that there is this grace that causes me to see others in the light of my own sin and the fact that there is a sin that causes us to be broken and lost and separated from God and as they, as they, they go together and as they, 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 they work in this whole process, the gospel and the grace of God requires me in every respect, in every person, to show compassion. Whether that person believes in God, believes in Jesus, believes in something else, or whether the sins that they have racked up are substantially more, or substantially more serious than the ones that I have committed. That there has to be a compassion that comes as a result of grace. Grace requires me to see others in sin, the light of my own sin. God's grace experience, God allows you to come as you are, but when you're in the grips of God's grace, you never stay the way you are. And you will never leave the where you are. And what happens is I begin to live a holy life. I've heard one pastor say it this way. The only one who was qualified to condemn her was Jesus, and he didn't. Why? What Jesus was doing was reestablishing righteousness through grace. If you try to live righteously without the experience of grace, you get Phariseeism. Stop and consider the emotions of this girl. If we could look back and think of this girl who all of a sudden, in the midst of, of a sin where she is, is caught in, finds herself in front of many, many, many people. We don't know how many people. And she is embarrassed by the situation. And she has exposure to everything that terrible has been going on. She's humiliated. She's embarrassed. And soon this embarrassment turns to fear when all of a sudden they say, we should throw rocks at her. We should kill her because the law says that that's what we're supposed to do. And the people start looking around for rocks and all of a sudden this embarrassment and all of these things turns to fear, turns to judgment. They're going to throw stones at her head until she died. And in the midst of that, there is this grace. All of a sudden goes from this fear. It goes to this, this level of, this isn't going to happen to me. I'm not going to be charged for this penalty, even though some reason, something that should have happened, didn't. And when you stop and consider it, she is us. Her life is built on a whole new foundation. It puts holiness on a foundation of grace. And when holiness is on a foundation of grace, you begin to realize the importance of it. You don't always feel condemned, and you don't feel like condemning Come to Jesus for grace, then go and sin no more. I kind of put it in this little crazy thing for my head. And so take it for whatever way you want to. And it's just kind of how I see grace. And, and I have it down here that, that people will disgrace. We disgrace people. We don't give them grace. We don't allow them to have it. We take it from them. I want to give you, look what you did. We kind of look down on them and we dis, we, we dis, we take away grace. The other one, the law will dis, and that dis is kind of the slang worm where you dis a person. When you show contempt for it, 
It all just becomes a bunch of words that you adhere to or you don't adhere to. And it disses the whole thought of, of grace. But Jesus will disgrace. He hands it out in every circumstance to every single person who wants, who calls on him. And if you understand grace, you will extend grace. And if grace is corrupted, you will point fingers like the Pharisees did. And it's the most important thing, I believe, for us today as we take a look at this passage of Scripture. It is this, that we will understand grace and that we will live it out. That I will understand grace and that I will live it out. And when we don't, there will be casualties. Casualties of judgmentalism and casualties of people who end up thinking they can live sin in a sinful life whatever way they want and the consequences that come from that. And when we do show grace, it will allow God to show hope to people. And folks, we are living in a day where we desperately need hope. And I'll say this to you this morning. I think we underestimate grace. As much as we are a proponent of, proponent of it, I think, I think we don't see it really the way we should. I don't know if you've heard of uh, an individual. Her name is Auburn Sandstrom. She's a professor at the University of Akron. And uh, she wrote this story in, uh, I think it was called The Healthy. It's kind of a, a branch of Reader's Digest. And as she tells the story, I believe she's 29 years old, and she says, I'm curled up in a fetal position on a filthy carpet, cluttered apartment. I'm in horrible withdrawal from a drug that I have become addicted to. And I'm sitting here with this piece of paper, and it has been unfolded, and it has been folded up. And it has this phone number on, and even though it's all tattered and it's kind of torn, I can still make out what the, what the phone number was. And here I am waiting for my husband to come to bring me the drugs to take me out of the withdrawal and the withdrawal from himself. And here I am thinking to myself, what am I doing? I have a baby in the next room. And she sits to think of all this taking place. And she thinks of everything going out. And she says, I don't want to lose my son. She said, I was not mother of the year that particular time in my life. A lot was failing in my heart a lot of times. And every time you come to a major faulty conclusion in life, it seems like you find a man or someone right there to help you live it out. So she said, I decided, I decided to get clean, to do everything that I could to become clean. I wanted to do it for my son. And so what happens is she unfolds this piece of paper. And the piece of paper was something that was given to her from her mother. Hadn't seen or talked to her mother for years. And the note kind of went like this. It says, I know you're going through a difficult time, but here is the number of a Christian counselor. And if you have ever find yourself at a point where you think that you can do it, phone him and I know that he will be able to help you. And so she goes through the whole process. And she was so desperate, she said, I finally picked up the phone and I punched the numbers at two o'clock in the morning while I was at my worst. And so she hears the phone ringing and she hears the voice, hello. And she said, listen, my mother gave, you, gave me this number and I'm wondering if somehow you can talk to me. She says, I, I remember hearing kind of the, him shifting himself and adjusting his, his blankets. And she said, it sounded like there was a radio on the side. He kind of turned it off. He says, sure, I'll be able to help you out. And so she begins to talk about, she said, for the first time in a long time, I began to be honest 
and truthful, particularly to myself. And she says, I'm scared. And I'm in a marriage, which is terrible. And before long, she said, I began to tell other truths. Began to said, I think I have a drug problem. And she said, this man just sat and he listened and he listened and his kindness and his gentleness. He said, can you just tell me more? That must hurt a whole lot. It said that he stayed up with me until all of a sudden I saw the light in the morning. It had become dawn. And she said, all of the anxiety and everything that came with the withdrawal began to become released. She said, I think I can make it through the day. I think I can go on. And so she sat down, or she, as she's sitting down, she talks with the, the counselor. She says, it is so kind. It is so kind for you to come and talk to me. She says, how long have you been a Christian counselor? She says, you are excellent at this. You must have been. Is there some Bible verses that you want me to read? And at this point, he says, Auburn, he says, promise me that you won't hang up on me. And she said, What? He says, I'm going to tell you something, but you have to promise me that you're not going to hang up on me. And she said, sure. And he said, Auburn, you called the wrong number. I'm not a therapist. But I thought you needed a voice to hear. I enjoyed speaking with you. I just wanted to somehow send some kind of love to you in the midst of whatever turmoil you were going through. And she said, she said, I never asked his name. I never got his name. I didn't hang up from him, but I have never talked to him ever since. But for some reason, there was something that had taken place in her that allowed her to have a level of grace enough to get up. Eventually, she became a single mom who got herself through school or whatever, and her, her son in 2013, graduated from Princeton University. And she says this, as she ends the, the article, she says, in the deepest, blackest night of despair, if you can get one pinhole of light, all grace rushes in. And if anybody knows grace, it's us. So my prayer for me, my prayer for you is this. God, help me to know grace. Help me to exercise grace. Because when grace is exposed, it takes over and God does great things. Amen. Thanks for listening to this message. If you enjoyed it, please head over to BethelBrandon.ca to listen to our older messages or maybe connect with us and figure out how we can best serve. Thanks for listening. Have a great day.